And uh, have you ever noticed, those of you that are married, have you ever noticed what a steep learning curve you had when you first got married? Uh, you know, if you've been married for any length of time, you kind of start to figure it out after a while. But when we first got married, I think it was the first week or so, uh, we had come home from our honeymoon, and it was a Friday night, and I was in youth ministry, and so Friday night, you're working out with kids, and I was going out that night to, uh, I think I was probably going to a high school basketball game, because it was in uh, November, and I remember Cindy, it was uh, at the door, she said, where are you going? Now, this is my, my brand new bride, and she wants to know where I'm going to be, but for some reason, I hadn't quite figured out that whole communication piece with, you know, your wife, and so I said, well, I'm going out, and I'll be back when I get back. Very sensitive, very compassionate, very loving. You know, all the women want to throw things at me right now. Uh, that was our starting point. So, you know, we, I had to go a long way. The learning curve was, was pretty steep for me. But what I, what I found out over the last 26 years uh, is that my priorities had to, had to undergo a radical transformation. You can't have the same priorities uh, married that you had when you're single because you're now sharing your life and your commitment, and your love, and your friendship, and all of those things uh, with another person, Lord willing, for the rest of your life. Uh, But I didn't realize that when I first got married. I don't know if I was just kind of dumb and not paying attention when I was growing up, and not watching and looking at what it meant to be married, and learning those kinds of things, but I I was pretty slow uh, on the uptake. Well, the facts are, when we come to Christ, there's a learning curve that takes place. A lot of people sitting in this room this morning consider themselves disciples of Jesus, and for those of us that, that find ourselves making that confession and seeking to, to live under his lordship, uh, I find that there is a, a process through which, and the technical term is sanctification is the word we use, but there's a process that goes in learning not only that Jesus is my savior, but learning what it means that Jesus is my Lord. So I want to put a proposition for you on the screen this morning that I'd like for us to consider together. As we think about this study in Luke, it simply goes like this, the coming of the son of man demands I refocus my highest priorities under his lordship. The coming of the Son of Man demands that I refocus my highest priorities under his lordship. Just as when I got married, I had to learn to kind of retool the way I lived and the way I interacted with Cindy. So when I've come to Christ, I need to understand that the priorities in my life need to go undergo a pretty radical transformation. This particular passage in Luke uh, I think subtly, but, but very succinctly helps us understand that. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 41 uh, through the end of the chapter, through verse 52. You can follow along in your Bibles or the passage that's on the screen. But hear the word of God, uh, Luke chapter 2. Speaking about Jesus, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, they were retur- and they were, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is a reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we have many priorities in our lives. We arrange our days according to those things which are most important to us. We have priorities uh, in our families, with our spouses, our children. Uh, We have priorities in our business and our work. If we're students, we have priorities in in our schoolwork. We have relational priorities of friends that we want to spend time with. people that we want to, uh, to engage with. Father, we have priorities in the way we spend our money, the way we spend our leisure time. Father, I pray that as we consider this passage this morning, that we would understand that our priorities uh, must come under your lordship. Father, there, there may be many things that we're doing right now that, that point to that, but there may be some blind spots in our lives, or it may be that we've never necessarily considered that Jesus is not only Savior, but he's also Lord. So, Father, as we look at this particular passage, pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, it's not important what I say. Father, I pray that you would forgive my sin, that you wouldn't let me stand in the way of what you want us to hear this morning. But, Lord, that you would come and that you would speak your truth into our lives. Every person in this room, whether we're searching and wondering whether or not we... uh, we believe in God or whether we call ourselves a tried and true disciple of Jesus. Every one of us needs your truth applied to our lives. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that in your power and in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go down a couple of of kind of abbreviated side roads for just a moment, but I think they're points worth mentioning before we ultimately get to this question of priorities and whether or not my life is really lining up with the the lordship of Jesus. Uh, The first thing I'm entitling it or calling it, just doing the little things well. Look at verses 41 and 42. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up uh, according to the custom. Uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. There's nothing really astounding here. Uh, Luke is simply giving a context for this story, and this is the one story that we have in all of the Gospels that talks about Jesus as a, a young boy. He's 12 years of age. But what strikes me here is that Mary and Joseph are, are doing a small thing that they're supposed to be doing. The law of Moses commanded that for uh, on three different occasions during the year, Passover being one of them, uh, that the people would come to the temple uh, and would worship God. And so Mary and Joseph are not doing anything really amazing. They're not doing anything that's really off the charts astounding, but they are doing the little things well. They're where they're supposed to be. And they're exposing themselves to the worship of God. And they're exposing this young son, Jesus, to the worship of God. They're bringing him to the temple, which is where, at the age of 12, he really needs to be. Because at 13 years of age, uh, in that culture, and that custom, that was when you became a man responsible for your own spiritual well-being. So for years, Joseph and Mary had been, had been preparing Jesus, and now uh, on this 12th birthday, they're right where they should be. Nothing really astounding, but just doing the small things well. When you think about it in terms of your priorities, you think about it in the way that you're aligning your life, uh, that's a question worth asking. Uh, not do I have the big picture things, right? You know, I know that, that Jesus is my Savior, and I know that I'm, I'm following him, but does that work itself out in the little 
uh, small details of my life? Day in and day out, am I examining the, the way I talk to people, the way I drive my car, the way I, I interact with people in my office, the, the offhand comments I make or don't make, the, the jokes I tell or don't tell, or just the little details of life? Am I examining those things under the lordship of Jesus? I would encourage you uh, to ask the people in your life uh, who are disciples of Jesus, what do you think are my priorities? What do you think are the things that are important to me? If anybody's paying attention to how you live and the small things, they'll probably be able to tell you. But I'm, I'm thankful that Joseph and Mary were, were doing uh, even the small things well. But as we get into the, to the heart of this story, uh, what we find next is a potentially tragic misstep. Look at verses 43 through 45. The feast is over, and it says when it had ended, they were returning. But the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, the first thing you need to know is there's nothing radically wrong with Joseph and Mary. They're not bad parents, okay? Uh, it was very customary in the day and time in which uh, this story is taking place for uh, folks from a, from a town. They were from Nazareth, and so there was probably a group from Nazareth, and it was probably a pretty good-sized group, maybe upwards of, of 100 folks, who were going down Jerusalem and back for the Passover. Now, Nazareth is a pretty small town, so a lot of those folks are related to one another. Jesus probably had cousins in the group. Mary and Joseph probably maybe had brothers and sisters. There were probably some aunts and uncles. And so this is a group that's traveling together. And typically when you travel together in a large group, you know the kids are around somewhere, but you maybe haven't seen them in the last 15 or 20 minutes. But you also can assume that maybe they're with their cousin or their friend. And in these days, the women and the smaller children, the, the, the boys that were younger than 12 and the little girls, they tended to travel up in the front of the group. And the men and the older boys tended to travel in the back of the group. So you can almost imagine as they're leaving Jerusalem, Mary kind of looking around and going, well, I don't quite see Jesus, but she's probably used to him being a little bit older and he's not hanging onto her apron strings anymore. And maybe she thinks, well, he's got a couple of favorite cousins. He's probably playing with them. Or she's maybe thinking, you know, he's back with, his, you know, he's back with Joseph and they're, they're coming along. And she wasn't too worried about it. And you can imagine Joseph as he leaves Jerusalem and talking with the other men and guys being sensitive to the kind of things we're sensitive to, maybe didn't even give any thought to whether Jesus was around or not. But he probably, probably looked around and said, well, he's probably up there with his mom. He isn't quite 13 years old yet. He's maybe still up with the little kids or maybe thought, you know, he, he likes to play with that, that little, you know, James boy, and they're probably over there running around. But it was very usual for this type of circumstance to take place. But what happens is sheer panic. Because at the end of the day, we're now, we've walked, you know, probably some eight to ten miles outside of Jerusalem. And we're setting up the fires for the night, and the, and the cooking pots are coming out, and we're getting ready to have dinner. And mom begins to look for Jesus to tell him to wash his hands before supper. And dad begins to look for Jesus to find out where he's been playing. They begin to walk around, and have you seen Jesus? Hey, have you seen our little boy? Hey, was Jesus with your family today? No, was he over there with the cousins? You know, Mary, you go look here, and I'll go look there. And you could feel the tension begin to rise. And you could feel the, the angst in their voices, and you begin to, to see the anxiety and the fear and the frustration. You begin to have thoughts like, oh, my goodness, I, I hope nothing's happened. I'll never be able to forgive myself. Losing a child, even for, even for an instant, can be one of the scariest experiences you've ever had in your life. And you can see Joseph saying, well, Mary, I thought he was walking up there with you all day. And Mary saying, Joseph, I thought he was back there with you. And then when they finally discovered he wasn't there, dropping everything and rushing back to Jerusalem. 
Even if you've been in a grocery store as a parent and your child went around the aisle for just a couple of seconds, you know, they got stuck at the Pop-Tarts there trying to, trying to reach for the strawberry Pop-Tarts and you had gone on to the next section. When you look around and you don't see them, you know that feeling. You know how awful that is. And you can only imagine that for Joseph and Mary. I have a, an acquaintance in youth ministry, a guy named Browning Wood. And Browning uh, serving a church in Florida now, but he used to work at a church in Rome, Georgia, which is just outside of Atlanta. And every year they would take a, a trip. Um, it was either President's we, uh, Weekend or Martin Luther King, but they take a three-day weekend and they go skiing in Colorado. They put all the kids on buses, drive down to Atlanta, get on the airplane, fly to Denver, and then get on buses again and uh, drive up to, uh, to, the, uh, to Breckenridge, to the ski resort. Browning told a story one year. They were in the buses on their way out of Denver and up to the mountains when his cell phone rang. He answers the phone, and it's one of the parents of, of a freshman girl who's first time on a trip, and uh, he says, hello, and the guy says, this is uh, whatever his name was, Mr. Jones. Browning, how you doing? Fine. The trip going okay? Everything's great. Uh, how are the kids doing? Everybody super? Or how's little Susie? This is her first trip. Is everything going great for her? Oh, yeah, no problem. She's fitting and having a great time. He goes, where are you? He says, well, we're, we're about halfway up to Breckenridge. He says, and you're sure Susie's great and everything's going fine? He says, yeah. He says, well, that's interesting because I just hung up the phone with her and she's in the terminal at the Denver airport looking for the buses. Not the kind of phone call you want to get when you're a youth director, having had those kinds of experiences before. The buses quickly turned around and they found little Susie and they ended up having a great ski trip. Shortly thereafter, Browning went to work at a different church. But you know the panic if you've ever been in that situation. Or maybe you were a child who maybe accidentally got left for a few moments. You know how scary that can be. Be that as it may, this is a potentially tragic misstep. And the immediate response of Joseph and Mary is literally to drop everything and to go back to Jerusalem and immediately begin to search for Jesus. Now, as the story unfolds, we see not only doing these little things well and not only this potentially tragic misstep, but there's several important discoveries that happen in the next few verses that begin to turn our attention away from uh, the potential issue of not being able to find Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, to uh, some discoveries about his heart and his passion for his father that bring us back to this question of priorities. The first discovery we see in verse 46, where it simply says this, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Now, when Luke says after three days, he doesn't mean they were searching in Jerusalem for three days. Jerusalem simply wasn't that big at the time. But one day out of Jerusalem, uh, then one day traveling back to Jerusalem, and then one day looking for him, at the end of that third day, they finally discover Jesus sitting at the temple. And I would say that that's a really good discovery, as simple as it may be, and maybe I'm just a little bit quirky, but wouldn't you be happy if you had been given a responsibility for the Son of God to know that you found him again? (laughs) Wouldn't it be good to know that you you had your hands on him again? I mean, God had given this child to you and said, I want you to raise him, and you're going to call him Jesus because he's the Savior of the world. You don't want to go into your quiet time and say, Lord, I just have one request today. (laughs) I can't find your son. I know I've... I had them somewhere. I mean, you just don't want to have that conversation. So I'm going to be kind of quirky me, but I think it's great they found Jesus. But beyond that, we get into this conversation between a mother and her son that I think is very, very revealing about our hearts and about the heart of our Lord. It says, and when his parents found him, they were astonished. And his mother says to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great 
distress. Now, every parent can understand this, okay? You find this child that was lost, you gather him up in your arms, you smother him with kisses, you hug him, and then you want to beat him to death (laughs) because they scared you so badly. And Mary's immediate knee-jerk reaction is, Jesus, you're wrong, and I'm right. Now, I want to suggest to you that I have that kind of reaction with Jesus quite often myself. That my knee-jerk reaction when things don't go quite the way I think they should is to blame God. Let me give you an example. This is Maybe it's, it's kind of silly, but I think it makes a point. I told you a couple weeks ago that I've been praying that, that God would give me somebody to talk to about Jesus every day. My prayer has been that, that as I go to work, as I interact with people, wherever, that somewhere in my day, God would give me somebody that needs to know about Jesus. And even if it was the briefest of introductions, I'd have that opportunity. Well, as the last couple of weeks have unfolded, some of those opportunities come up. But there have been some other days where, you know, at the end of the day, you're lying in bed and you have your head on the pillow and you're kind of praying and falling asleep all at the same time. And you're maybe thinking about tomorrow or recapping the day. And there have been a couple of times where I thought and prayed, Lord... I didn't have anybody to talk to about Jesus today. And my next part of my prayer is, God, why didn't you bring somebody my way? Now, why is it that we think that way? Why is it that we presume innocence upon ourselves and guilt with God? Is it that God doesn't want people to hear about Jesus? Of course not. Well, as those days have unfolded and as I've gone through, you know, kind of the next 24 hours, Both times I've had that experience, the same thing has happened. As I've gone through the next day, at some point in the next day, it's dawned on me as if the Holy Spirit were speaking and saying, Tom, do you remember yesterday when you were talking to so-and-so? That was the chance I brought you, and you missed it. You didn't have your eyes open. You weren't paying attention. Mary's quick to judge Jesus. I'm quick to judge Jesus, and yet if I step back and I look, it's not that Jesus has done something wrong, but it's rather that my eyes are in the wrong place, and I'm assuming my innocence and his guilt. And I would suggest that for those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, it would probably be spiritually healthier if we flipped that. And that my prayer at the end of the night was, Lord, show me where I missed it, because I know you're the faithful one, and I know I sometimes can be unfaithful. So Mary has this assumption, and Jesus confronts her misconception. In verse 49, He says to Mary, he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Jesus isn't saying that it was wrong to look for him. He's probably very glad to see them. He'd been there for a day or so, and he he was probably concerned that they they would be okay and know that he was okay. It says later on that he goes back to Nazareth with them. I'm sure that Jesus loved Joseph and loved Mary as his children loved their parents. So there's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with them looking. But Jesus, I think, addresses the fact that Mary's alarm was short-sighted, that she pushed the panic button way too soon, and that Joseph's concern, this great distress that they were feeling as they were searching was actually out of place for two reasons. The first is this. They should have remembered God's promises and their personal experiences with God. Remember the first time you meet Mary? Mary's having a conversation with an angel who's telling her that something extraordinary is going to happen to her, that she, as a virgin, is going to conceive and give birth, and that this child is no ordinary child, but rather he's the Messiah, God's promised one who's going to come into the world and save the world from its sins. That's a pretty impressive conversation. You remember what happens to Mary next? According to Luke's gospel, we looked at this passage. She goes and she visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And Elizabeth says, the second that Mary walks into the room, the child within my womb is leaping for joy because the Messiah is now present. 
You think about Joseph and his encounter with the angel when Joseph's going to divorce Mary, and the angel says, Joseph, don't do that. This is of God. Something spectacular is going to happen. Take Mary home to be your wife. She's going to give birth to a son, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph and Mary both together enjoyed the experience on the night that Jesus was born of the shepherds appearing out of the blue and saying, you're not going to believe what just happened. A whole heavenly host appeared to us and told us to come and to worship this child who will be the Messiah. And then shortly thereafter, wise men appeared from the east bearing gifts that would support financially Mary and Joseph because they had to flee with Jesus to Egypt because Herod was looking to kill the child. And God provided for their every step. Why did Mary and Joseph not remember? Why don't I remember? (laughs) Why am I so quick to panic? So quick to take my eyes off my God who has not only promised me but shown himself time after time after time to be faithful. They should have remembered God's promises. I should remember God's promises and our experiences with our faithful God. But they also should have remembered the seeds they had been planting all along. Remember how the text starts out? As was the custom, they went up to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph had been teaching Jesus, if that were possible, the importance of being at the temple the importance of having a relationship with their father. And they ought to have had confidence of the fact that they were teaching their son the right thing, and he was getting it and understanding it. I was down in Charleston last fall with uh, Nathan visiting Katie. And we were kind of making out our plans for the weekend and making out our itinerary, and, and Katie was kind of looking over what the plans were. And, and I don't want to say that golf is an idol in my life, but golf can be an idol in my life. And Katie uh, looks at what we're doing, and she says, Well, now, Dad, we're going to church together on Sunday morning, Right? I go, oh, Katie, that, no, that, that's a misprint. That golf shouldn't have been there. That should have been church with Katie on Sunday morning. Let me, let me, let me erase that and, and get that just right. You know, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. All her life since she was an infant, her mother and her father have been telling her how beautiful it is to go and worship God with his people, how important it is to have a personal relationship with him. Why should I be surprised that the student has become the teacher? And I think Mary and Joseph should have been encouraged by the fact that Jesus had listened to those words that they had spoken, had watched them worship, and was now embracing the beauty and the glory of his relationship with his heavenly Father. But not only does Jesus uh, confront Mary, but he also discloses something about himself. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? He doesn't say, I want to be in my Father's house. He doesn't say, it's, it's a nice uh, diversion for me. Uh, to be in my father's house, but he says, I am compelled to be in my father's house. This relationship with his father is paramount above all else in his life. His identity as one with his father would be the foundation of everything that came out of his life. If you go and you fast forward into Jesus's public ministry, You go to the Gospel of John. In chapter 6, Jesus is in a conversation with people about his lordship. And he says, you guys have missed it. You don't understand. I haven't come down from heaven to do my will, but I've come down from heaven to do the will of my Father. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. This relationship with his heavenly Father, this identity with his Father would go on to be that which controlled his entire life. His passion for his father, it ordered every step of his life. It allowed him, this passion of his father, allowed him to gently rebuke his mother 
without breaking the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother. Jesus was right in confronting Mary's lack of faith, but he did it in an honorable way. It also motivated him to be submissive to their God-given authority. In verses 51, it says he went down with them. They came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. His mother treasured up all these things, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus' relationship with his father ordered every step of his life, and every thought and every word and every action was aligned with that relationship. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, you see how often he goes away to be in prayer with his father, how often he goes to spend time talking with his father. You see how Jesus has the same concern for the sick and the poor and the disenfranchised and the, and the small children, the most vulnerable. And if you go back and you read the Old Testament and you see how God has a heart for the poor, and a heart for the broken, and a desire to bring restoration and healing. Jesus is simply mirroring the words of the Old Testament. He's simply mirroring the character of his Father in heaven. When you see Jesus abject hatred for the hypocrisy of religion, not hatred for the people, but hatred of that hypocrisy, and you see his condemnation of talking about loving God while actually not following him and trusting in him, you see the Old Testament prophets. And you see the word of God speaking clearly in its truth against honoring God with our lips while our heart is far from him. Jesus says, I must be in my father's house, sets the stage for everything that comes from there. Every aspect of Jesus' life, all the way up to the cross, is ordered by his relationship with his father. But you know what, friends? That's not the point this morning. That's good for us to know. It's encouraging. It should strengthen our faith but it should result in simply asking one question. Is this true in my life? I claim to be a disciple of Jesus. I claim to follow him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. I don't get it right all the time, but I claim to be his. Does that passion for my heavenly father look like the passion that he has so that I am compelled by the love of God to follow him and to serve him and to look at every area of my life and ask whether or not my priorities align with his lordship. That my deepest desire is to draw close to God, to be in an intimate relationship with him so that everything that comes out of that, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, my business, my work, my studies, wherever I happen to be in life, all of that is conformed to the image of my father. It was what defined Jesus, and it ought to be what defines me. My prayer is that it's what will define us as a congregation, which means it's what needs to define you and needs to define me as individuals so that the witness of Jesus Christ will simply be to the glory of God so that when people see us and interact with us and experience relationship with us, they won't go, wow, those are tremendously great people, but they'll go, man, God has a hold of them. And he's what's most important to them. And because of that, look at how well they love. Look at how they serve. Look at the compassion. There must be something real about this relationship with Jesus. I had this lived out in front of me yesterday in a couple of small but significant ways. Uh, My wife, as usual, was my example. Uh, Yesterday morning, I had to go to a church meeting. She spent the morning with another uh, sister in Christ going to visit the family of a student of hers who was uh, shot to death and killed Monday afternoon. Didn't get much press, didn't get much publicity. After all, you know, what's one more 
city kid being shot to death matter anyway. She took time out of her Saturday to go and just to be with that mom, to be with that young man's sister who's also one of her students and just try to say we love you. Nothing really profound, nothing really earth-shattering, but being willing to go because she's a representative of Jesus Christ and just wanted to love those people. Yesterday afternoon, late, about 5 o'clock, Nathan and I are lying on the couch uh, watching. We had tivo Tigers round of golf. We're watching golf. I said golf might possibly be an idol in my life. But um, anyway, phone rings, and Cindy goes, I've got to go help one of my students because they're, uh, they, they have to go to a shelter. They don't have a place to stay tonight. And they found a shelter, but they're, uh, they're down here, and, and the shelter's up in North St. Louis. And so she grabbed Nate, and, uh, and out the door they went again. Nothing really phenomenal, nothing really earth-shattering, but somebody whose priorities are aligned with the priorities of Jesus because that's where Jesus would be. Jesus would be at the funeral of a 16-year-old black kid whose death didn't even make it on the news. Jesus would be helping somebody into a homeless shelter and then coming home and saying, man, that's the hardest thing I've ever done, watching this kid go through her belongings and give me stuff she didn't want to be stolen just so she could get through the weekend. I'm not saying this to praise my wife. She... I praise her all the time anyway. I say this because it points to a heart that I want to have and a heart that I want us as a congregation to have that says, you know what? Our priorities are all lined up under the lordship of Jesus. And where he leads, we'll follow. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this one story out of the early life of Jesus because it points to his passion to be in relationship with you. It points to the fact that he was submissive to you before he was submissive to his parents and that he was compelled to draw close to you. And from that, all of his life, his human life flowed. Father, that is my prayer this morning, and I, and I hope it is our prayer this morning. I get it wrong so often. I, I live for my own priorities. I live for the world. But Father, I pray that today, perhaps, each one of us would be willing to examine our priorities and understand that the Son of Man's coming demands that I refocus, that my highest priority is for Him to be my Lord and for me to follow wherever He may lead tell somebody else about Jesus, to serve someone who's hurting, to simply maybe put my arm around somebody and say hello to him. Lord, wherever it is, big or little, may we be a people who live under your lordship and impact this community for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.